2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 173, and my name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I am joined on the line today by Dr. Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are things?
1: Uh, Things are good.
2: Good, good, good. Also on the line, coming at you from the humid, humid Houston... (laughs) Seems like there should be a noun there, but at any rate, it's David Grubbs, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, uh, I should really write these things down if I try to do clever intros.
0: <laughs> I'm doing well. And very it's not, good. not quite as humid as one would think. It's, it's blown through, and it's actually very pleasantly breezy today.
2: Well, there you go. I wouldn't have guessed.
1: Smell that smog.
2: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> Well, listeners, by the time this one drops, you should have another Book of Nature podcast in your hands or in your phones, whatever the case may be. Uh, Christian Feminist Podcast should be coming around with another episode before too long. I'm not sure exactly when. And I haven't heard anything concrete from Sectarian Review, although we have good intentions to have a Halloween episode. Although, honestly, I'm we're, we're coming down to the line, so... When this drops, you listeners will know whether they got a Halloween episode out in time or not. <laughs> so, uh, let's see here. Are there any other uh, news around the Christian Humanist Horn?
0: I don't think so. Not really. Not that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I mean I, other than watch out for profiles, but you know.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say. I know Kristen would want us to say that we're we're back on the pace of a uh, profiles interview just about every Monday. So Pretty much.
1: I listened to Kevin Van Hooser Mm -hmm. on the way in today, and as soon as he said mood, I thought, he should talk about Heidegger, and then he talked about Heidegger.
0: (laughs) Did you get the part where we talked about Bede?
1: No, I didn't get there.
0: Uh, We talk about Bede. It's so great. Well, I'm going to have to
2: listen to this thing. I haven't gotten around to it yet, but (laughs) listeners, you also should listen to these things. But you didn't tune in to t- hear us talk about David's interview with Kevin Van Hooser, as cool as that might be. Uh, <laughs> More you t- like
1: Kevin Van Hooser, am I right?
2: Hey, it's not nice. You tuned in, good listeners, to hear us talk Marlowe, and so we shall. Our subject matter today is Christopher Marlowe's play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. Uh, Nathan,
1: I'm going to let you finish, but first I just want to point out the irony. Uh, The Existentialist leaves the show for several months, and you do the Seventh Seal. He comes back, and the first episode is Dr. Faustus.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's not my fault.
1: (laughs) Didn't you get this early modern stuff out of your system?
2: When when does early modern leave my system, Michael? It is his system. (laughs) Well, David, I want to uh, increase your degree of difficulty points on the historical (laughs) survey. So here's what I want you to lead off with. What are the most important ways in which Chris Marlowe is not Bill Shakespeare?
0: Mm, Most important ways that Christopher Marlowe is not Bill Shakespeare. Uh, Christopher Marlowe, also known as Kit, apparently, which is kind of awesome, Born the same year as Shakespeare, they are contemporaries, but while Marlowe's still alive, he is the one occupying the limelight, and presumably would have if he didn't get stabbed in a brawl, the purpose of which is somewhat hazy now. Um, we'll get to that. Anyway, one of the first ways that Christopher Marlowe is not Bill Shakespeare is that Christopher Marlowe is uh, has got some kind of record of an actually interesting life. <laughs> or as William Shakespeare is, uh, famously something of a cipher, uh, which has led some people to really, really wish he was someone else. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Marlow, on the other hand, was kind of an early, kind of an Elizabethan rock star. Um, he apparently just lived large and loud. um, after his death, there were, you know, he was accused of being a Catholic, being an atheist, uh, being a homosexual, being a spy. Uh, apparently, three out
2: of the four of those will get you kicked out of a Christian college. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, and, and and you get to guess which three, uh, <laughs> dear, dear listeners. Um. So yeah. Uh, Christopher Marlowe's life, uh, both, uh, both factually and the stories told about him, are exciting. Um, things we do know, uh, Cambridge didn't want to give him a Master of Arts because they suspected that he was just going to run off to the continent and become a Catholic priest. But then the Royal Privy Council intervened and said, give the man his M.A. because he's done the Queen good service. Which we won't talk about, so you know rumors rumors about what that service was abounded, including was he a spy?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the fact that all of the guys who were in the room when he got stabbed in the face uh, were also some kind of secret police or spy or something on that order. Um has also led led folk to believe that he's uh, that Christopher Marlowe is engaged in a world of skullduggery Anywho, artistically he's also distinct from William Shakespeare, and uh i i I beg preemptive forgiveness from all Shakespeareans because I will need to unpack this but um Marlowe and Shakespeare are kind of like Tarantino and Spielberg. <laughs> uh marlo is colorful his favorite color is red and he likes it splashed all over the set um he's big and loud and violent and he just seems to delight in being offensive and transgressive see well dr faustus uh edward the second jew of malta um, I don't know that much about Dido of Carthage, and I've heard that the Massacre of, massacre of Paris is about the St. Bar- Bartholomew Day Massacre, which, you mm-hmm. know, it's got massacre actually in the name, so there you <laughs> go. Anywhos, the Christopher Marlowe plays, are uh, he, just, he just reminds me a lot of Quentin Tarantino in that he delights, he seems to delight to shock. Not in an, in an artistic way, in an artistic way, but still, that's what he wants. And Shakespeare, like Spielberg, even when he's going for the scare, um, or the uh, or the more violent, or the more sordid, um, there's still a kind of humanity to it, if that makes sense. Um, Macbeth is still dark, but it's not as delightfully dark as Dr. Faustus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the. Uh, And, you know, you you guys can contest me in in these regards, but uh, Christopher Marlowe, um, I I, I find him very, very exciting, but he seems to me like a dangerous guy to hang out with. And I would not take his advice, whereas (laughs) William Shakespeare, when he's when he's being more humane, I feel like I can kind of trust this guy. Maybe not when he kind of, you know, hairs off and writes Titus Andronicus. Then I'm like, whoa. But, you know, I, I don't think Christopher Marlowe could write a much ado about nothing. It would be I, very
1: different if he did.
0: It would be very different <laughs> if he did. So what have, what, have, what, have, what have I botched? I, the medievalist, talking uh, presuming to speak about the early <laughs> modern.
2: Oh, I mean, I I think your catalog of his plays, I mean, does a good service. About the only uh, pair of plays that I would add to your survey would be the two Tamburlaine the Great plays. Right, um, I forgot the it, I it, It's one of my favorite uh, anti-reversals in literature because the first Tamburlaine the Great, you see Tamburlaine rise to power, rise to prominence, rise to the status of this invincible conqueror. And then all through the second play you see the rise of a rival to Tamburlaine, uh, and he rises and rises and rises until the final act and the final battle happens. And, of course, you know what happens. Tamburlaine wins again. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's, there's actually a speech that, uh, you know, if, if I were to produce it, I mean, he would speak it to the audience where he effectively says, you didn't really think he was going to win, did you?
0: <laughs> so...
2: That's about all all I'd add to that. Now, I realize that some of our listeners and both of your spouses could probably talk for an hour just on the source text of the Faust legend, but I want to dig right into the script here. So, Michael, what sort of character is Dr. Faustus before we meet him, when the chorus is talking about him, and when he appears on stage up to the point where he meets Mephistopheles?
1: It is not a uh, subtle portrayal. (laughs) <laughs> the chorus comes right out and explains that he is a student of divinity who has gotten too big for his britches and now seeks uh, power in necromancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that is fitting with what I know about the Faust legend. I mean, that that is what you get in Goethe's Faust, for example. Mm-hmm. Faust himself, in the first scene, and, and you know, I read this out of the Norton Anthology of English Literature, and mine are all scenes, but when I tried to read what other people had said about it, they had acts, too. So yeah. I don't know if it's just divided up differently, or if I'm actually missing stuff.
2: D- different editors do different things.
1: Okay. So in the, in the first scene, you get Faust systematically going through really every form of human knowledge available at the time, and talking about how none of it is good enough for him. And what he needs is magic. So he goes through philosophy. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't like philosophy because all it does is dispute with logic. And then he goes through uh, medicine. And uh, that appeals to him because he can make a lot of money. And become famous if he cures something, and that that too echoes with the Goethe version, where he accidentally kills a bunch of people trying to trying to cure them. Uh, but he he eventually decides, oh well, I can't be a doctor because I that wouldn't allow me to bring people back from the dead, and so it would limit my power too much. Like mm-hmm. I said, this is this is not subtle. Um. Then he goes into law, and law is, he says, it aims at nothing but external trash. So law does not go deep enough to the heart of things for him. Finally, he gets to theology. He doesn't like theology um, because he, he, as he sees it, it all it does is tell people they're doomed for hell. And I'll talk about that more in a little while. Um, and finally, he succeeds. On, he, succeeds he, he lands on magic. Mm-hmm. Because uh, magic will allow everything that moves between the quiet poles to be at his command. Emperors and kings are but obeyed in their several provinces, but he will be obeyed by all of nature. So, uh, th- th- this is this is how we this is how we meet him as a as a man who doesn't just say he's too good for everything, but goes through and systematically shows us why he's too good for everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the irony, of course. The thing about medicine, he they ask him to raise the dead at the end of the play and he can't do it. So I mean, really he's still super limited uh even in his pursuit of magic, but he goes at it because he thinks it'll be the most power he can possibly get.
2: Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would add to that, David?
0: Just the yeah, my, Michael's Michael's done it justice. But the, the- High Praise. Yeah. Well the the catalogue of um, the catalogue of arts and sciences, he's basically going through I guess what would be the the terminal degrees, the mm-hmm. professions of his day, and then all all of the all of the legal professions, <laughs> all of the, the, the highest prestige professions, not just subject matters but also identities, um, he systematically discards and chooses the one that is forbidden um so he's you know he he's talking like an academic but he's also you know in social terms he's intentionally choosing to pursue the art that is outside of the goods of society
1: why did he study divinity
0: um because we know
1: he's a divinity student the chorus tells us at the beginning that he's just gotten his phd he's gone through his his disputations Mm-hmm. Why does he study divinity why why is he not going through this uh role of fields of study before he goes to college <laughs> you know what i mean isn't that isn't that a isn't that a thing you usually do your second semester of your freshman year
2: well in this case and again you know we're we're not going for subtlety here by any means you know this is a character who not only pretends to be above everything, but who has actually surmounted everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, you know, the way that he talks about them, he talks about all of these fields as if he has already mastered them. Uh, So he's not only a a master of the liberal arts, but he is a master of law, and he's a master of medicine, and he's a master of logic. The problem
1: is, most famously, when he quotes these Bible verses going through divinity, he leaves out the second half of them. mm -hmm. Right. Which completely changed the meaning. I suspect if you went through and looked at medicine and law and logic, he's doing the same thing. It just wasn't as obvious to me.
2: Right, right. Yeah, about the only other other thing that I'd want to touch on real quickly before we move on to the next bit is that at this university that, you know, our fictional Faustus occupies, and of course the Faust legend has him at about four different universities, Mm -hmm. uh, but there are these two characters, uh, Cornelius and Valdez, uh, who seem to be basically sorcery researchers. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, it's never really clarified, you know, whether they are, you know, secretly doing this on the side while teaching Hebrew and Greek, or if they are, you know, just, you know, Hogwarts professors. But uh, (laughs) either way, you know, Faust uh, does not get into level of magic that it's going to require to summon a devil to sell his soul to unabetted. Uh, He actually has help from other characters on stage to get there, and I think that that's not insignificant. Mm -hmm. We should
1: also probably talk about the most famous part of that scene, which is the psychomachia. The the, the the good angel and the bad angel land on his shoulders and mm-hmm. as is familiar to all viewers of Donald Duck cartoons <laughs> one one yep. tries to persuade him to do good the other one makes fun of the good angel and so forth
0: yes right. yes yeah um if if we haven't mentioned it so far uh the the chorus is also uh wants us to know that uh Dr. Faustus actually has already done a great deal of good. He's not just a really smart guy. He's also been incredibly useful, um, as when he says that have not whole cities escaped the plague and thousands desperate maladies been cured because of his, his bills, because of the prescriptions that he's given or the remedies mm-hmm. that he's described for various um, ills. This is actually someone who's, who's already done great good, but is discontent. with with even that
2: and Michael's already mentioned that you know, Gerta alters that part pretty significantly in that (laughs) only Faust and his father knew that they were actually poisoning the people when they were doing that, but that's not the case in Marlowe's version
0: no, they are different
2: well David, I've talked with you about teaching this play because both of us have done so Mm -hmm. I know that when you teach it, you focus far more on the nature of late medieval and early modern magic than I do so mm-hmm. I want to tee that up for you. What is magic in Dr. Faustus, and what connection, if any, can a careful reader find between its sorcery and the thaumaturgy as practiced in the late Elizabethan
0: era? Sure. Um, there, is, uh, there is renaissance. Um, uh, the The renaissance in Europe is not just a renaissance of humanist literature and philosophy and so forth. Um there's also a renewed interest in natural philosophy, which manifests as magic and what we would now call science. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of them lost and one of them won, but things were not entirely clear (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) when something like this is being written. Uh, This is from C.S. Lewis's English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: He says that, the uh, talking about the, the occult sciences, magic and astrology and so forth, uh, that at, at this time they appeared themselves to be striking new roots to be having their own uh, renaissance. They are in fact the extreme exemplification of a common tendency or common mood which can be traced in many other departments of 16th century life. Um, that this pursuit uh, of... Of magic was as characteristic of the Renaissance as exploration, Ciceronianism, and the birth of secular drama. So this is this is something that was in the air. It was fairly um, people knew about it, even if they didn't know that much. They kind of knew it was around. Basically, there's two distinctions. Um, There's sort of high magic, which you call thaumaturgy, um, theurgy, divine magic, natural magic. All of these terms are more or less um, interchangeable that sees itself as working in accordance with natural laws in order to bend nature to its will. Um, In that way, it sounds actually an awful lot like science in principle. Um, The difference is that the... um, magicians tended to view the world as alive so that working in accordance with um, the laws of nature is more like appealing for assistance or the service of persons than it is like, well, natural laws as science theorizes them. Mm -hmm. So you have someone like Prospero in The Tempest who has um, airy spirits and other kind of elemental creatures who are at his beck and call. Uh, And that's sort of the idea of of high magic there. There's also black magic, um, evil magic, uh, goetia is the term, is the proper term. And that involves using other kinds of laws, laws in the spiritual sphere, in order to... um, impose service upon demonic entities Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea is that there are demons and that you can make them serve you as solomon was said to in the legends when he bound um, uh, demons or jinn to his will um, which you'll find in um, both uh, jewish and uh, islamic uh, folklore the idea that solomon was a mage uh, who who commanded demonic entities Anywho's. When Faustus is describing what fascinates him, he describes necromantic books with lines, circles, scenes, letters, and characters. And these are things that you would find in in books of of magic, uh, both theurgy and uh, thaumaturgy, high magic, and black magic, Goetia. Um, Signs and circles, especially circles to be drawn on the ground that you stand in the middle of to protect you when the demon shows up. Um, the description of, of raising, uh, Mephistopheles later on, uh, ties into that, but I won't spoil too much of it. Um, Valdez talks about these spirits being serviceable to him, uh, talks about how he'll use the Hebrew Psalter as well as Bacon, Roger, not Francis, and Mm -hmm. Albertus Magnus, um, the works of of reputed occultist in order to uh, to summon and and bind these creatures. Um, so, so yeah, compulsion of demons is what Goetia is about, not bargaining, uh, selling your soul with something that was associated with rich with witchcraft. So in the Faust story, there's always kind of a, an uncertainty about what kind of magic we're actually dealing with. Witches were believed to sell their souls in a bargain to the devil, but even practitioners of Goetia were seen as compelling demons. They were not themselves bargaining with them. They were, they were compelling them to do things. So there's something that's um, not quite... Uh, the, the 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 two elements don't quite fit. They fit even less when you go to Goethe's Faust, and you actually have Faust going to a witch's sabbat. Um, in addition to naming the particular um, grimoires that he uses, and mm-hmm. those two completely don't fit together in Goethe. Um, they just it's 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 an ill match in in Marlowe.
2: I I should have known that you know how, no matter how tightly I drew my circle, I could not keep Goethe out of this podcast. So. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right.
1: What were we supposed to do? I mean, the the Gerta is the other famous version of this, and it, it is in intriguing ways.
2: It's yeah. true. It's true. Um, like Marguerite
1: uh, doesn't even appear in this play.
0: Exactly.
2: Oh yeah, that's that's entirely Goethe's invention. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Michael, is there anything else about the magic that you'd want to? Uh,
1: you're you're joking, right? What do I know about <laughs> early modern magic? <laughs>
2: uh okay fair enough fair enough um yeah I, I i suppose just on a historical note quickly before we move on uh this really is the era when you get a lot of witch trials mm-hmm. uh so again one of the one of the stereotypes that i know we we've been exploding here a lot lately you know in the last calendar year or so is the notion that witch trials are a a medieval thing but in reality, if you look at the historical record, uh, witch trials and chemistry and you know modern democratic political theory all kind of have their nativity in roughly the same period. So stick that in your pipe. Yeah, <laughs> somebody oh, should write a paper. Those you know, three things. <laughs> there you go. Well, Michael, the, the sequence that most people know about in this play... Uh, if you ask them, you know, do you know anything about Faust, they'll say that, okay, that's the one where Faust signs over his soul to the devil. How does the demon Mephistopheles manage that exchange, and does this scene deserve to be the best remembered in the tragedy?
1: It is a really weird scene. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think so. I think the first first scene, the, the one with him going through the the various disciplines and discarding them and then the psychomachia. I think that's the best part of the play and maybe, maybe the death scene as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He does sign his soul over to the devil. He signs it in blood, which is a, uh, I don't remember if that happens in Goethe or not, but it is a, a trope that has survived from Dr. Faustus. Uh, What hasn't survived so much is that when he cuts his arm, to try to try to write his signature in blood his blood freezes because god is trying to uh keep him from doing this mephistopheles of course goes and fetches a uh pan of hot coals so that the blood will run again and he can go ahead and sign it over
0: Mm -hmm. so helpful
1: what what, well you know he's there to please what's amazing about that scene to me is the number of outs faust is given
0: Yes, he, he mm-hmm. almost
1: yes. repents several times and he goes back on it and it's never exactly clear why except the first the first line of the of the scene says and I'm turning my page Faustus is talking to himself now Faustus must thou needs be damned and canst thou not be saved
0: what mm-hmm. boots
1: it then to think of God or heaven he's like decided that he's going to be damned so he may as well go ahead and do this so he can get some temporal power while he still can which mm-hmm. is interesting because it's very different from the motivation you get in the first scene.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: The other weird thing, um, he and he and Mephistopheles have a rather lengthy discussion about the afterlife.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: which uh, Mephistopheles says, well, you know, there's no literal hell exactly. It's just we're all going around on Earth and wherever we are is hell. It's very similar to... Uh, some, some stuff you find in the first book of Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Faustus incredibly says, well, I don't believe in hell.
2: And <laughs> Mephistopheles
1: tries to convince him that hell is real. Which, I mean, it seems to me like if you're trying to get the guy to sign his soul over, you, you would not mention that. You wouldn't want him thinking of what's going to happen to him after he dies. But here Faustus, he is, he is talking to a demon and he says there's no such thing as hell. i don't understand like i don't understand what Marlowe's going for
2: well i mean part of it is precisely what you were saying earlier i mean faustus gets this i mean if it weren't tragical it, it would be almost funny series of outs i mean it's so excessive uh and in fact it goes so far to that extreme that even the devil at some point is trying to talk him out of it (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other
1: famous part of the scene, the the parade of the seven deadly sins. Mhm. But yeah, it it really is just a bizarre scene. And and as you say hard to figure the tone of.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and and to make reference I mean to a an episode that we recently said that we don't remember because it was so long ago. You know, this is one of these places where having a familiarity with John Calvin really does help you to see not that Marlowe is himself being a Calvinist with this scene, but that those ideas are just in the atmosphere. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, if, if you think about, you know, sort of the core of John Calvin's psychology, right. It is that human beings make idols. I mean, we are just uh hell bent in a very straightforward geographic sense. Yeah. Uh, and in this scene, You know, Marlowe is, like I said, not being a Calvinist, but certainly taking advantage of the fact that Calvin is in the air, right? So at every turn, up to and including the devil trying to talk him out of it, God reaches out to Faust and, you know, tries to pull him back from this. But Faust is just entirely bent in his will on his own damnation. And that's
1: actually... The the idolatry theme starts in the prologue. The chorus says nothing so sweet as magic is to him, which he prefers before his chiefest bliss. Which I I think my uh, I think the Norton says his chiefest bliss is his own soul. I think it's actually probably referring to God.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole catechism thing, right? Yes. <laughs>
1: <You> know, <laughs> St- Stephen Greenblatt, as he's demonstrated, is sometimes not so great with Christianity.
2: Yeah, true okay. enough, true enough. David, I feel like I've cut you off about three times in here. Do you have anything to...
0: Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm just making concurrent noises. Uh, okay, very good. <laughs> though I do think this is supposed to be funny sometimes. Oh, well, clearly.
2: Well, well yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. what's so perverse about Marlowe is that, uh, you know, I mean, he, he is Monty Python before Monty Python. You laugh, and then you feel bad yep. about having laughed.
0: Right. Well, it, when Mephistopheles is saying... I am a hell-tormented soul. Even when I am gone from hell, per se, hell is with me, and I once saw God, and I have been deprived of everlasting bliss. And Faustus responds, What is great Mephistopheles so passionate for being deprived of the joys of heaven? Learn thou of Faustus' manly fortitude, and scorn those <laughs> joys thou shalt, thou never shalt possess.
2: What? <laughs> <laughs> what he
0: he sounds like he's well he sounds like Satan in Paradise Lost trying to give his guys a rah rah speech except he's a dude yeah yeah right? well and
2: and I mean the relationship between <laughs> this play and Paradise Lost is weird too because Michael nodded to the line that Mephistopheles says that you know later on we hear in the in the voice of you know Milton Satan you know that wherever I go there hell is. The difference, of course, is that in Book Four of Paradise Lost, Satan is talking to himself. Mm-hmm. In this play, I mean, it's part of Mephistopheles' sales pitch. Oh yeah, hell, don't worry about hell. I mean, anywhere you can go, you can be in hell. Actually, go in there. Not a big deal. Sign the paper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but even then, he, you know, he, he, he says, you know, th- think that I am not think. Thinks thou that I that saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven am not tormented with 10,000 hells and being deprived of everlasting bliss. Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't a soft hell, even if he is walking around with it. Right, right. But Faustus is like, "Ah, just put on your man pants. Don't be such a baby. (laughs) Could could we
1: argue that Mephistopheles is as self-sabotaging as Faustus? And that's why that's why he goes to such lengths to defend the existence of hell that mm. this thing he th- supposedly wants he doesn't actually want.
2: Yeah, I <laughs> Well, and, and and it's almost as if I know I'm you know,
1: psychologizing the devil.
2: Yeah, well, but yeah. It, I mean I think it works <laughs> here because I mean that that's part of the dark humor here is that Mephistopheles gets his feelings hurt so he, he takes his eye off the ball. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is not something you think of when you think of, you know, demonic temptation. You know, you, you, you don't find that in the Gospel of Luke. You, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, although, and, and, and here I'm, I'm myself reproaching myself for who brings in Goethe more frequently than I. Uh, but this is one of the things that Goethe definitely picks up with and just runs like crazy is that his Mephistopheles is this utter frat boy who couldn't tempt his way out of a paper bag. Mm-hmm. So, I, I it, it, it's fun just to kind of see these traditions picking up, you know, a few centuries later and doing cool things. I, I so. think
1: it's obvious that the best version of the Faust story is that Saturday Night Live sketch where Faust takes Mephistopheles to the people's court.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Mephistopheles played seen.
1: in red suit by uh, John Lovitz.
0: <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to see if I can track that down because I have never seen that.
1: At one point he shrugs and says, I'm the devil.
2: (laughs) 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 Oh, shoot. Awesome. Well, David, we are are going to neglect the middle section of the play entirely at my whim because I find it less interesting than the beginning and the end. No kidding. (laughs)
1: it It just drags.
2: But we should say something, which means that David Grubbs is going to say something. David, what does Faustus do with his newfound diabolical
0: power? Stupid things. <laughs> um, oh, what, one, one thing that ought to be noted, which, which uh, I neglected to say in our last point. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's actually, when Faustus is actually summoning Mephistopheles, and you have that actually sustained bit of uh, Latin where they're where Marlowe actually has an actor on the Elizabethan stage invoking the sacred name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Shakespeare's never going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) It was
1: illegal for Shakespeare to do that. Shakespeare's writing a little later. Was it illegal when Marlowe... It couldn't have been.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe this is why this was illegal. Maybe this is like Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom, why there was a PG-13. And, and and here I am sitting in my office
2: failing my uh, comprehensive exams. Uh, for Antigue, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I've forgotten the date when that got banned.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> at, at, at any rate. Um, I just
1: want to point out I knew something about the early modern stage.
2: Thank which, you.
0: Which, <laughs> which, is, which is good. Good job. Um, anyway, I, br- I bring this up because there were uh, a series of urban legends around Dr. Faustus. Even back then. That uh, when it was first performed, that demons actually showed up during the invocation scene. <laughs> right. Um. Anyway, so yeah, I, I just thought that might actually be worth bringing up. Um. Yes. Yeah, so, so
2: diabolical power.
0: Yeah, Faust does stupid things with it. Um. He starts off, and it's really interesting. You can actually trace it. He starts. He's got this brilliant idea. I'm gonna rule everything between the poles it's gonna be awesome um, earlier on in the play all right I'm glutted with the conceit of this and I'll I will f- have the the spirits fetch me whatever I please, resolve all of my ambiguities. You know, they're going to give me all the answers. They're going to bring me whatever I want. They're going to perform whatever desperate enterprise I wish. They'll fly to India for gold and ransack the oceans for Orient Pearls and bring delicate foods from all corners of the earth and we'll talk philosophy and they'll tell me state secrets from around the world and I will have them wall off Germany with brass and I'll be like king of Germany and we're going to stomp on Italy. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to be emperor of the world and so forth. So this is what he announces before actually making the deal. And Mm -hmm. then he gets to the deal. And the deal is let uh, that the devil will spare Faustus four and 20 years, letting him live in all voluptuousness. Having the ever the Mephistopheles ever to attend me, and when it breaks it down to the contract, it's that Faustus be given uh, be maybe a spirit and foreman and substance, let me be invisible, that would be cool, and that Mephistopheles will be my servant, and that Mephistopheles will do whatever I want, and that Mephistopheles could also be invisible, and that I could you know make him take whatever shape I want, and so twenty four years. There you go. So mm-hmm. you see, his wishes getting smaller and smaller, even before the actual scene where he signs his soul over. And then after that, having all of these ambitions to conquer the world and learn all secrets, he ends up <sighs> playing pranks on the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> right? He, sna-
1: he snaps the Pope with a towel.
0: <laughs> basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically, he he's playing. He's Playing invisible pranks on the Pope. Hey, hey. Um. <laughs> he sells the guy a fake horse. All right. Um <laughs> It's guys, guys, guys. Check this out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, really sad. And the twenty-four hour years, the twenty-four years, just they just kind of flash by in a cutscene of stupid. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, all right, granted, he flies on a dragon all the way to the Primum mobile, the outermost sphere that God himself turns and then back again in basically some chorus narration. Like, we mm-hmm. don't even get to see that, right? Well, I mean, granted, how would they stage flying to the Primum yeah. mobile on top of a dragon, which made me think of NeverEnding Story. Anyway... <laughs> All, all, all that to Speaking say. This, papers
2: that probably haven't been written.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. All, all that to say. This Faustus starts with all these grand envi- uh, grand visions of conquering the world, plundering its wealth, learning the secrets to all of the all of the biggest questions, and in the end, just plays pranks for twenty four years. Mm-hmm. and at the end of it is like what wait what 24 hour years are 24 years are gone whoa no <laughs> all right granted he gets to score with helen of troy but is it really helen of troy i don't think it's really helen of troy anyway he also he
1: also makes demons act like alexander and roxana mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. oh yeah for that,
1: for that emperor don't forget about that
2: yeah <laughs> and he
1: even tells the emperor that's what he's doing <laughs>
0: I yeah it's just goofy. Is there any more we want to say about that? It's just goofy. It's
2: well, sad. honestly, that this is one of my favorite concepts, although like you say, I mean, you know, reading through it much less watching it on stage is tedious <laughs> mm-hmm. is that I mean, you know, there is a a weird subversive theological statement being made here. Mm-hmm. Uh and I mean it, it's very Augustinian in its own way that you know the desire to do great things is itself a good, yes. you know, uh, and so if you sell away your soul or even if you have the intent to sell away your soul and I, and David, I, I actually hadn't noticed that pattern before, so I'm glad you brought that forth. Uh, you actually lose that goodness that desires good for the world. Yep. So, you know, there, there's no sense that you want to restore the Holy Roman empire. If you don't have a soul that desires justice, Yep. Uh, you know, you don't want to learn the secrets of, you know, all of the heavens and all of the earth, except for maybe a joyride to, you know, see where Dante got up to. Uh, <laughs> unless you've got a soul that longs for heaven, and once Faustus has sold that, although he still has fear later on, and Michael's going to talk about that here in a minute, uh, he doesn't have the will anymore to do what is good. I mean, so That's- it's it's a weird, subversively tangentially Calvinist point here that the will to do good is a divine gift, and if you piss that away, then you end up being worthless for twenty-four years.
0: Yeah, well, it's Boethian too. The pursuit. Oh yeah, of Vi- yeah, yeah. The I-, I was trying of vice- not to say Boethius. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to say Boethius. The pursuit of it. vice. The pursuit of vice leaves you with bestial desires, mm-hmm. and and that's what he's done. Um, you know, he, he can no longer, as you say, he can no longer have even, even partially good ambitions. He, he just gets more and more and more selfish and, pe- and goofy and petty, which mm-hmm. sort of gives the lie to uh, kind of the grand magical villain, right, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know in especially fantasy literature and movies, I, like a Voldemort, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. something
1: Byronic about Dr. Faustus.
0: No. No, no, and there's nothing Nietzschean about
2: him either. I mean, if, if anything, yeah. this is a play that deflates those pretensions of the the ubermensch. He's just right. a
1: schmuck.
0: Yeah, it, I mean <laughs> it, bas- it basically just revolves down to Faustus Faustus is is basically the guy who who ends up being content with unending pizza rolls and porn. <laughs> That's basically it.
1: All night video games. And, and ba- the,
2: there's yes. the quotable line of the episode, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Pizza
1: rolls and porn is going to be your autobiography's title, isn't it, David?
2: No. <laughs> oh, shoot. Ow. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, well, on that note, uh, <laughs> Michael, I want you to take us to the final hour of Dr. Faustus. Uh, the way that you imagine this last scene, are we looking at a Lutheran terror at the wrath of God, an existentialist grappling with the doom that descends when Faustus takes a stand on his own being, or something else entirely? Uh,
1: Closer to the Lutheran fear of the wrath of God. You'll you'll notice that that scene, which in my edition is scene 13, Mm -hmm. so I I figure that must be on purpose, although I don't know when 13 became an unlucky number. Um, the scene begins with Faustus's fellow scholars urging him to repent. And he, he says, rather than trying to repent, he just says that his sin can't be pardoned. And he says, even weirder than that, the serpent that tempted Eve may be saved, but not Faustus. You'll notice mm-hmm. that's still a form of pride. He he, uh, he thinks of himself as worse than Satan, which is to say he thinks of himself as better at evil than Satan.
0: Yeah, which is hilarious.
1: Most of that scene though is him trying to negotiate the afterlife he he does eventually try to repent um but he immediately like he doesn't finish the sentence before he starts calling on lucifer instead so he he says i'll leap to my god who pulls me down see, see where christ's blood streams in the firmament one drop would save my soul half a drop ah my christ ah rend not my heart for the naming of my christ yet i will call on him oh spare me lucifer Mm-hmm. so so he can't even repent right he he he's too double minded even to do that he's been double minded this whole time um at this point, the negotiation begins, and he says, Well, if you can't save me which i he's begging the question if if you can't save me, why don't you let me suffer in hell for some Determined period of time, and then either annihilate me or bring me to heaven or whatever he immediately goes back on that, says it can't happen, and then he says you, you talk about his desires becoming bestial. he wants to be an animal because mm-hmm. animals don't go to heaven or hell
2: mm mm-hmm. yep
1: and then of course, I mean none of it happens. He just dies, he goes out to burn his books, and that's the that that's the last we see of him mm-hmm mm Do you read this, Nathan? Do you read it more as an existential terror?
2: Well, it's interesting because, like you said, I mean, he is so double-minded that he has become his own duplicity. So, I mean, in in that respect, you know, I see it as his existence in this, you know, final scene, this final speech, uh, taking on the character of someone who has forsaken lawfulness and someone who has forsaken health and someone who has forsaken logic and ultimately of course someone who has forsaken the ultimate good. Uh, he is someone who can't even decide what he wants when it's most important to know what you want. And even when he has a mystical vision, and I and I've got no reason to think that, you know, Marlowe is writing this as a simple, you know, sort of biological hallucination, I think it is one more time when the blood of Christ actually comes to Faustus in his last hour. Uh, he's still, like you said, unable to keep his eye on the ball long enough to actually ask Christ to forgive him. Um, David, I, I mean, what do you see going on here in this last scene?
0: Well, in, in a lot of ways, this is anti Existentialist, right? If if existentialism is all about taking responsibility for your choices and what they make you, uh, what they make of you, mm-hmm. um, at every point in, along the way, whenever he's been faced with a choice, a chance to repent, a chance to do something different, he pleads necessity pushing him in this direction. Mm-hmm. Um, even even before. Uh, the, he, he's always pleaded some kind of inevitability and now when he tries to escape it he's pleading even for the same kind of inevitability Were that, would that I were a brutish beast who has no rational soul and no volition for which there is responsibility he asks for the, the stars um, that reigned at his notivity whose influence hath allotted death and hell Right, so one of the arguments about astrology in the in the Renaissance was that it applies to your body but not to your soul. Mm-hmm. So that the so that the rational man who lives in accordance with you know the logic of 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 God, a, a divine logic, can rise above the influence of the stars. But he's 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 essentially saying the stars have doomed me. So maybe maybe my body, which has been star doomed, maybe it can um my my limbs can issue from the smoky mouth, but then my soul melts and ascend to heaven, right? Because it's just my body that's been sinful. He even wants to go kind of, you know, Gnostic in that way. Like, you know, sin is a body thing and my and stars can take my body because they doomed it anyway, and maybe my soul will escape. You know, the whole way he's been saying, "I I must, I must go this way because I can't make a choice." And now that he's here, he just keeps fleeing to different kinds of determinism to take away his responsibility for the choice.
2: Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's kind of the existential element that I see in there is that you know, even in his last moment, he won't confront the fact that he's the one who's chosen this doom over and over and over again. Yeah. So, well, David, uh, as we head out the door here, uh, I want to send it around the horn as we do at the end of these episodes. As Christian thinkers, what benefit can this play be for our listeners beyond what we've discussed so far?
0: Hmm. One little interesting tidbit uh, that shows up as soon as Memphis, uh, as soon as the deal is sealed, so to speak. Um, one of Faustus' very, very first wishes is for a wife in Germany. For I'm wanton and lascivious and cannot live without a wife. All right, I got needs," says Faustus. Says Faustus. Um, to which Faustus, uh, to which Mephistopheles says, "You will have a wife," and then offers him a woman devil, uh, offers him a succubus, which Faustus doesn't want. And then Mephistopheles says an answer, Marriage is but a ceremonial toy, and if thou lovest me, think no more of it. Mm-hmm. I'll call thee I'll call thee out the fairest courtesans and bring them every morning to thy bed. Right. So just the idea that in Marlowe's uh, in Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, as as reckless as Marlowe's reputation is, marriage is still presented as, as, as a positive good mm. that, that, that even if, if Faustus chooses a wife, even that is too good. <laughs> even that could be in some sense sacramental, in some sense, um, sanctifying, in some sense, a good that could push him towards, um, back towards God and away from, uh, away from the devil. Uh so, Mephistopheles will not permit Faustus to marry, but instead offers him endless, meaningless sex mm-hmm.
1: with Helen of Troy.
0: With Helen of Troy, <laughs> which he still addresses as a leman, as a yeah, wife, yeah, a mistress, and not as a wife. So that even the 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 ideal woman, the most beautiful woman of all history, whose face wa- launched however many ships it was. A thousand? Yes. Not a wife. A mistress.
1: Of course, you probably don't want Helen as a wife.
0: <laughs> no, you don't. No, she not have a great track record. No, she doesn't. That's true. Although,
1: you know what? That's not fair. She's abducted. I mean...
0: She, she did get kidnapped, right? Yeah, in, yeah. In, in some versions of the story, though.
1: Yeah. No, you're right.
2: <laughs> yeah let,
0: let's not blame the victim here nathan
2: yes and we're we're, we're going to start a whole new episode here if we're not careful so michael it's around the horn to you
1: yeah okay i'll uh, i'll say one thing worth looking at and i'm going to ask you guys to explain something to me the thing worth looking at is that all power ultimately comes from god when hmm. uh when faustus wants to summon the devil he has to call on god to do it even though he repudiates him the next moment yeah. The, mm-hmm. the scene David talks about where he uses Jehovah's name, he says, in, in Latin, I believe it's something like, farewell, three-person Jehovah. But right before that, he's drawn a circle and said, Jehovah's, uh, Jehovah's the one who's doing this.
2: Right. So, that, so This was a historical moment where they actually knew what it meant not to take the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Um, the thing I want to know about is, what function do the supposedly comedic scenes have with Wagner and... Wagner's various Mormon yeah, uh, friends. Yeah,
2: Wa- Wagner and Robin and Rafe.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, honestly, the way that I tend to teach it when I teach it, and then I'll lateral to David here, is that at first they, they stand as a strong foil to the seriousness and the headlong rush to damnation that Faust represents. But by the end of the play, I think what's fascinating is that they are functionally identical. The goofy pranks and the ineptitude of Robin and Rafe, Faustus basically takes on himself by the time you get to scene thirteen or fourteen, depending on how your editor cuts it up. Uh, David, what would you add to that?
0: I, I think you've nailed it. Um, one uh, comedic interludes are kind of in, uh, are, are kind of expected at this point in theater. Um, mm-hmm. So, so they're put in there, but yeah, there is, there is that convergence, um, so that by the time you get towards the end of the play, um, Wagner and Robin and so forth have almost a kind of simple dignity to them, right? (laughs) At least they're really idiots, (laughs) right? You know, they didn't make themselves that way, right? They, they've got, you know, they've got kind of the dignity of a Gomer pile, who can't mm. help it?
2: Right.
1: <laughs> <are the> In <laughs> terms, Philistines and barbarians. I can't remember which one's which. Oh, da-
2: Danny, where where are you? <laughs> yeah, and and I was thinking, you know, not even uh, not even that sophisticated. I'm thinking that you know, Rafe and Robin are sort of the wily e. coyote interlude
1: <laughs>
2: foul yeah. scenes. Because right. I mean, a- every time they try to harness the powers of the dark world and it ends up blowing them up but then they're back the next scene right
1: i skimmed those scenes i must admit i did, <laughs> I did not find them entertaining i
2: i i'll admit they the, i mean unless you like roadrunner cartoons there's not a whole lot to them i do you like don't. roadrunner cartoons but
1: i don't like those <laughs> there you go wait are there people who don't like roadrunner cartoons
2: oh i don't know i mean some people you know think that if you're reading a you know, sixteenth century play, then it has to be very serious. Hey, I'm fine
1: with the gatekeeper scene in Macbeth. I think that's I think that's <laughs> wonderful. I just don't I didn't find this funny.
2: Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So I'm digging on the slapstick. Uh is is it around to me now? Yes. Okay, very good. Sorry about that. Um well first of all, since I served up the the question set, what I'm gonna say is going to echo something that is sort of emerged over the course of this episode, but the reason that I think this play is such an interesting one is that it's a demonstration of how the sort of intellectual framework of Christian theology, when you distort it, can create a kind of a story that is still recognizably Christian, but in which something is definitely off. Uh, So, you know, you've got divine grace definitely operating here, but then you also got the vaguely goofy... uh, you know, infinite saves that Faustus seems to have. Uh, You get, you know, a very strong sense, like Michael said, that, or maybe it was David, I can't even remember, but (laughs) that, uh, you know, the divine name, if invoked in vain, can have a great power. Uh, And yet you do get the Rafe and Robin scenes where you've got the demonic power, you know, basically being used to blow up the railroad bridge before a roadrunner can cross it. Um, So it's, it's, A fascinating little artifact, I mean, especially to teach at a Christian college, precisely because it's not an anti-Christian text, strictly speaking, and it's not a Christian text, strictly speaking. It is some kind of bizarre mixture of both, and I think that makes it worth reading. So, tell you what, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, Michael, I believe you're at the helm next time, are you not?
1: I believe I am.
2: What shall we talk about, Michael?
1: That smart aleck, Joel Joslin wrote us an email that says, you guys should do an episode on Tolkien this season while Michael isn't there to snark about it. (laughs) We're doing an episode on Tolkien, which I will lead since I've not read nothing, and I will ask you guys the questions, and then I will snark on Tolkien the entire time. (laughs) I've not read nothing. I read The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) So get ready to defend Tolkien against me.
2: Very good. Well listeners, until that c- comes around, of course listen to our other Christian Humanist Radio Network shows. Check us out on Facebook and of course visit iTunes to leave us a review there. That is the chief way that people come to our podcast and are able to enjoy it. Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. Amber Lee Copeland is our audio editor. And I am Nathan Gilmore, who, in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, leave you saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.